What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Bridging the Gap podcast. Today, we have an amazing episode of Mr. Joe Jeffrey. We talk all things anabolic steroids. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, but before we get into that, um, this is completely our own findings, our own research, learning um, over the years. This is not meant to be advice to anyone. This is not meant to be taken by anyone. Um, we are not encouraging anything to do with the use, misuse, or abuse of anabolic steroids. We are here to just educate in the best position we can, or Joe is here to educate in the best position that he can. He offers private consultations um, if you want anything like that, um, but please get in contact with your general practitioner if you're going to embark on anything like this and make sure you're controlling everything and you're taking the right precautions. Um, the last thing, I know I said on the TM Cycles podcast, but on this one, there's a little bit of reverberation. I'm just trying to find out whether it's the kitchen that I'm in, um, because my mic should be spot on, but I can tell by my mic I'm not picking up anything. Uh, but there's a little bit of reverberation. I think it's because I'm in my kitchen, so I'm going to move away from my kitchen for the next guest podcast. So apologies for any little, little, it's like a millisecond. It's fine. Don't worry. Enjoy. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. What's up, everybody, and welcome back. Welcome back to the Bridging the Gap podcast. Today is a cool episode um, that we're going to take, a, take a, a fairly decent dive into the world of anabolics um, and steroids. Um, I have the man Joe Jeffrey on the podcast. Um, Joe is is an online coach um, and, uh, and an avid steroid enthusiast uh, slash um, extremely extremely knowledgeable person. Um, and I'll say this right now on, on the podcast, the main reason why I don't go into detail about this stuff is because of people like Joe and listening to him talk um, and understanding the intricacies of these of these drugs on different levels. Um, I think it's I think it's really going to highlight today the lack of knowledge that a lot of people do have um, and the knowledge that they probably should have. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Joe. I really look forward to this conversation. I think there's a lot we can we can we can cover to help people here. Yeah, thanks for having me on, dude, again, and um, I feel like you've absolutely blown my head up there, so I'm going to have to try and sound super intelligent now. I've, um, a few bit I have I've just got right. in from 10,000 steps, so I might not be as on the ball as I'd like to be, but I'll try my best anyway, but um, yeah, that was too kind, man, thank you very much for, for, the, for the kind word. I don't want to throw, you know, because I know how this stuff can go, so I don't want to throw just the craziest deepest things at people we, we can obviously scratch through the surface just remain concise about things so we can clear things up for people and then you know we, we'll, we'll talk off topics for you so that you guys can uh, listen and, 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 and hopefully enjoy so um i think i think first and foremost we should we should probably start with with kind of the, the health implications that these will have just so that people can hear that first and foremost because i think it'll be very easy to get lost in the in the taking this and taking that and, and what should I take here and designing stacks and stuff but I think maybe just addressing the health concerns first um so Joe I'd love you to run through what, what are the associated risks with with anabolic steroids and what are the ones that we should be concerned about okay so I could briefly cover some basic negative health effects and then probably the most notable things that an anabolic user should be monitoring in terms of their health profile over the years of use so the first thing I think is prudent to know that there's a large difference in effect between endogenous secretions of testosterone or or your testosterone being within the physiological range and using exogenous administration to get into the super physiological range. We see quite a stark difference between the health effects of 
keeping our physiological testosterone in the mid to upper ranges, let's say 700 to 900 nanograms per deciliter, we only see positives in health at that um, dosage. We'll see less stroke incidences, improved cardiovascular risks, improved quality of life, improved body composition, lower mortality rates, etc., etc. Um, there, there are androgen receptors in so many places like the brain, the lungs, myocardium, tons of these peripheral tissues outside of skeletal muscle that, that are going to be taking a hit from these deleterious changes in proliferation, hypertrophy, fibrosis, or even cancer biology. Um, so it seems obvious, but some people don't know. Obviously, hormone deficiencies create their own problems, and also at super physiological dosages, um, there are their own problems there. But I'll, we'll keep it to super physiological dosages because I suppose that's what we are talking about. Um, basically, the longer duration, let's say, X amount of the year that you spend in a super physiological dose, the greater the net health concern is going to be. Um, in terms of case studies and research that's been published on this, quite a few papers on myocardial infarction, both from acute to quite extreme levels. Um, um, the most obvious example being somebody like Dallas McCarver, who's, who was noted in his autopsy to have a heart the size of a, a male cow or something crazy like that. I literally watched um, that autopsy report yesterday. His heart was it, like 930 grams, nearly a kilo. Yeah. That now, that's not to say that, you know, he was a very tall and very big guy. He was athletic. And people that do have large aerobic capacities and do work at higher heart rates have some level of, um, you know, cardiac hypertrophy anyway, or ventricular hypertrophy. Um, anabolics, we specifically look at left ventricular hypertrophy, um, but it does seem to exasperate it. There are case studies where they compare anabolics using athletes to non-anabolics using athletes, and the um, the hypertrophy of the left ventricular wall is larger. Um, they are looking at drugs like angiotensin receptor blockers to possibly attenuate these effects over time, but I think that research is in early days at the minute. Um, I was reading one the other day that inhibits the RAS system, which is something that Nandrolone, um, works under one of the mechanisms that Nandrolone works under to cause this uh, left ventricular hypertrophy and they were able to completely erase that. Um, so the future is bright for stuff like that. But right now, yes, lots of um, anabolic steroid use being associated with um, myocardial infarction and of course ventricular hypertrophy. Um, we see increased systolic hypertension with anabolic steroid use, um, cerebral infarction, um, uh, something that's not often mentioned is there are quite a few case studies of the addictive patterns of use of anabolics users. Mm -hmm. um, so actual physiological and psychological addiction to the use. Um, the majority of users of anabolics in these large studies are dependent on their use. Um, and that that's something that people wouldn't think about, but it's very obvious. You know, I, I, I can easily say myself, if I'm being realistic, that I... I am addicted to using super physiological levels of anabolics, yeah. you know, because, and, and you likely are now as well, because you have this goal in your mind you want to get to, and it's, it's a requirement. And if somebody said, no, you can't do that now, would you be able to stop? No, exactly. I wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Um, so there's some basic ones, of course, LDL, um, there's a, a strong or rather, well, we'll get into lipids when I talk about monitoring. 
health effects actually. Um, anabolic steroid users do see greater cardiomyopathy, like we've kind of touched on there. Also, stroke, which is interesting because TRT levels of testosterone seem to decrease the rate of stroke and peripheral vascular disease. Um, so, talking about health monitoring, which is probably more what people need to pay attention to because no matter what I say here, people are going to use super physiological doses of, of anabolic. So, what can we do to possibly um, attenuate the risk? So, the things that I would suggest are the most important things to cover is to get an annual echocardiogram. So once a year, get a look on your heart. Um, have a look at the level of ventricular hypertrophy that you have. And you can look at things like flow rate and whatnot and see how your heart's doing. And in terms of lipids, so this is something like we mentioned last night, like this is a convoluted thing. A lot of people over-focus on HCL. Um, the... The way I like to monitor lipids in clients is using something called the Dutch Modified Score Chart, um, which you can input your data into, and it will give you the risk of fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular disease. Um, and you should treat LDL if you're an increased risk. The thing with HDL is it's, it's unclear if the decrease in HDL caused by anabolics is detrimental at this point, because the HDL cholesterol efflux, which is basically the pathway that transfers intracellular cholesterol from various cells like macrophages to extracellular acceptors, it, it seems to remain unchanged. So I'm not totally made up on whether the HDL issues with anabolics um, are worth focusing on. I'm not saying that they're not, but I just I, I don't think that we know that yet. So, But, hey, uh, but LDL is something that I would absolutely um, treat. And then we could get into the increased cardiovascular risk seen with various ratios between HDL and triglycerides. But like I say, if this is caused by anabolics, it's not clear if the, the efflux actually does change. It seems to remain unchanged. Um, hematology is something I'll focus on, so hematocrit specifically. So not allowing your blood to get too thick, basically. Yep. Kidney-wise, um, an annual microalbuminuria, which is a word I can never say, um, check. Uh, so this is basically an increase of urine albumin. Um, it's when the kidneys will basically leak small amounts of albumin into the urine. So when you've got a high permeability for albumin in the glomerulus of the kidney. Um, that's that's the only thing. I'm, the thing is with things like liver enzymes and some kidney enzymes, if we're getting into things like creatinine, AST and ALT, um, a lot of them are markers of localized inflammation or markers of muscle mass so again they can be convoluted in people that are resistance training yeah. and things like that um and a really basic one just look at your blood pressure yeah yeah i know it's, it's, it's crazy the amount of people that talk to me about something they don't don't take their blood pressure yeah i mean it's so easy just do it daily waking up and just make sure that you have a proper sized cuff yeah for sure you, you think you can get the xl ones off medisave.co.uk easy it's like it's like 20 pound extra large cuff sorted yeah, it is so easy, and, and, and that's the number one, really. And then you could look at things like CRP to check your levels of uh, systemic inflammation and stuff. But what I mentioned there, I think if you handle those, you, you're knocking out the, the big rocks. Perfect. And, and all of these blood tests you can, you can get from private blood test companies these days. Maybe your GP will do it. In terms of the the like the um, the angiogram type thing, what what uh, could, would you go through your GP for that? I mean, I... I, I have private health care. Okay, so you can do private as well. Yeah, so I pay for my echocardiogram and my um and my kidney checks yearly. 
Um, I only do that once a year. It's not actually too expensive. I think uh, a GP certainly is within their ability to do so, but we know that they often have a wall up against anabolic users that will just tell you to stop doing it. Yeah. Sometimes it's easier just to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, of course. But if you're lucky, that's great. Great. So, so that that's a lot of things that you can cover in terms of monitoring your health while you're on cycle, um, or just year round. To be fair, um, if you're looking to go down this route, do you, do you feel like there's prerequisites to to taking steroids and beginning your anabolic journey in terms of maybe getting like a baseline across the across the, the all these readings? Um, or do you think they become irrelevant anyway because you, they're going to be changing? Yeah, well, this is the thing. I know people say, like, I'm getting my blood work down on my hormones to see where I'm at before I start. It's like, well, you know, that's going to be very useless data because you're about to completely artificially change your hormonal profile. Forever. And, and you know, I, I am very much of the mind that if somebody uses hormones, then it should be a lifelong decision. And it's a very big decision. I, I don't believe in, in the cycling theory or going on and off. I just think that's definitely the... The worst decision in terms of health outcomes, the more negative uh, deleterious health outcomes are going to come from those periods of being hypogonadal over time, over and over again, is fairly useless with respect to any goal, whether it be physique or health. And in terms of prerequisites, it, it's hard because it's very much an ethical question, and you yeah, see yeah, right. how this changes all over the board. Yeah. People say you should you should have competed in. X amount of shows before you can use it. You should have been trained for X amount of years. And, and really, I don't think me or anyone else is in any position to say what somebody else should or shouldn't do. Um, it's going to come down to the individual weighing up the risks and rewards for them. Do they require this pharmacology to reach their end goal? Are they willing to accept the risks long-term that come with it and possibly pay the price down the line? Um, and that's also going to come into what total milligrams they use over a duration. Um so it's going to come down to the individual. I, I would never put myself in a position to personally say, these are the rules before you take yeah, anabolics. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, if you have a terrible lipid profile and a pre-existing heart condition, it's not a good idea to take anabolics. And you're probably going to wind up hurt. But uh, it, it's your freedom to choose what you do with, you, with your own physiology. Yeah. I think that's well said. And I think I'm one to actually, you know, that I probably should step away from that line of, actually thinking that I could draw draw the line of when you should be taking it and when you shouldn't because we're in, we're in this life for ourselves, you know. At the end of the day, you, you're, we're all grown, grown adults here. We've, the information's there. It's about, it's about getting it and absorbing it and understanding it and then making your decision off that. Um, I'll tell you what, one thing I would say as a prerequisite is, and this is just completely physique-based, assuming that the listener is using anabolics for physique goals, Get lean first and make your first time on super physiological levels of hormones with the goal of hypertrophy. Yeah. Okay. Um, all anabolics work when, when you're leaner, you know. And we could get into the science of reducing aromatase expression in adipose tissue and whatnot. And, but um, putting on quality lean tissue is so much more difficult than losing body fat. And realistically, you don't need hormonal assistance to lose body fat. Um, and probably the greatest response to hormones is going to be with your very first experience, so don't waste it. Yeah, I wish yeah. I wasn't looking at when I started as well. I think that would <laughs> make a difference. <laughs> Sweet, yeah, like you, you touched a bit on blasting cruising. Um, it's it's such a like a trigger word. Do you do you cycle off or do you blast blasting cruise, bro? You know, like which what which side of the fence are you on? Well, 
I'd love to hear why. Like, why should I blast and cruise? Why should I come off? You know, if 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 I'm 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 competing, I'm gonna give you the the scenario. I'm competing. I want to be in Olympia, so I'm gonna be you know using steroids for a very long time with the goal of growing my physique and then obviously coming off later on, whatever. Um, what are the pros and cons of coming off? What are the pros and cons of, of blasting and cruising? Okay, so, and these aren't even the only two options. Um, oh, yeah, I've heard about other things as well. So, we can go so I mean, again, this is going to very much be an ethical discussion on your own risk-to-reward ratio. Sure. So let me make it extreme. You're, let's say you're thinking to yourself, I want to be on the Olympia stage. I, I don't care about my health. That's, that's a non-issue to me. I absolutely disregard it, which nobody should do. But this is this this hypothetical situation. Then you would neither cycle nor blast and cruise. You would just blast. And because androgen receptor down regulation doesn't occur, firstly, we see a transient upregulation in androgen receptors as dose goes up and then it levels off. So there is no reduced response to androgen receptors. And as far as I've found, but I'm willing to be proven wrong, there's no desensitization of the androgen receptors or the downstream mechanisms such as gene transcription or various enzyme reactions to anabolics either. So you would just say on the total milligram per kilogram that you require to progress at the desired rate until you hit the end goal. And there are people that do that. Um, And you would you would just go straight through and you would you would probably pay the price at the end. Or not, if you're lucky, who knows? Yeah. Um, let's say that you, what could be another goal? So you, you do have health in mind, but you want to compete and you want to stay consistent. Well, then yes, you, you would blast and cruise, but then how high are your blasts and, and how high are your cruises? Again, a risk to reward or ratio. The thing about anabolics is more definitely is more. Now, there is this inverted U that the toxic load of the, of the compound may overtake any myotropic benefit that you get from it. It usually falls somewhere between, I mean, most top-end users are, are between 2 to 3 milligram per kilogram per week. And when you exceed that dose, the toxic load for most people, although there is a large amount of biological inter-individuality with anabolic use, of course, just like any level of pharmacology, there are literally people that do not respond to anabolics. They have zero response, and there are people that hyper-respond. You know, you see people like Michael Lockett or Ronnie Coleman that, that, that are huge, and then there are people at your gym that don't look like they would ever take steroids, but maybe they take grams, you know, because response is so different. So, and people's effects on health are so different as well because one gram of testosterone for me and one gram of testosterone for you will have very different downstream effects on health and hypertrophy outcomes. Um, So this is a very difficult question and something that's going to be very personal and something that will just require constant monitoring of data and feedback. So I've seen it recently a lot of um, uh, if you don't cruise at TRT dosages, that's not a cruise. You know, we, we, we need to remember that a cruise isn't a medically defined term. Yeah. You know, this is this is something that, that anabolic users have have sort of synthesized themselves. Um, and again, it is nobody's opinion or there is no definition of a cruise. Some bodybuilders will have such skeletal muscle mass that they cannot maintain it on 
a true CRT. Those, those people do exist. And if your goal is to simply maintain and reinstate health markers during a cruise, yes, you want to use the minimum dose possible to, to maintain health, which for 99% of people will be in the mid to upper physiological range, maybe somewhere between 75 and 150 milligrams of, of testosterone per week, depending on your um, individual response. However, there are people that cruise on more, and that's up to their risk to reward. The way that anabolics work is the total, the greater total milligram per kilogram over X amount of time will result in the greater hypertrophy outcome. So it's up to your risk to reward. Let's say if you want to push that cruise a little bit harder up to 500 milligram total or something, or put an additional compound in there like a DHT derivative, which is very common. You know, something that someone we all know like JP does. If you can bring your health back into ranges that are acceptable for you as an individual and you accept the risk of running that X amount of total milligram higher than a TRT dose, that's up to you. Same thing with your blasts. You run them as high as your risk-to-reward ratio allows. Now, whether that be the minimum effective dose, great. I think that's probably the best idea for everyone. But it doesn't happen. Some people want to push and they want more. And more is more. Yeah. Uh, but you will pay the health consequences. So I feel like I've gone off topic here, but when we talk about blast and cruising, there is no answer. There is no blast on this and cruise on this. That's not how this works. It's an individual thing that you have to weigh up and ethically decide for yourself what you're going to do with both, both in terms of total milligram and compound choice. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's such an interesting point of view that I've not really, I've not, I've not heard that too often. And it really, you know, that's, that literally just struck home when you were saying it. It is... It doesn't make a fucking difference. It's literally what is your risk to reward ratio? How far are you willing to push it? You know, it, yeah. That's that's, yeah, that's a really that's a, that's a really cool way to think about it. Uh, yeah, I hope I, that definitely cleared up things for me, um, especially in terms of you know you hear all these words about down regulating and, and insensitivity and oh I need to come off so I can feel the test again, bro. It's not thing. It's not a thing. So um, that's that's good to hear. And yeah, that was that was a really nice summary on that. Thanks. In terms of cycling, I can just write this off. So I will say these are my personal views, but for me, the use of exogenous hormones for, for a short duration, and we need to remember also that the hypertrophy isn't that much of an acute process. I mean, if you follow periods of increased hypertrophy with hypogonadal periods, it's, it's not a wise idea. Um, and also being super physiological for a short period of time and then coming off completely to become hypogonadal. Um, is going to affect the endocrine system and ultimately cause greater levels of downregulation to the HPG axes over time. And you will eventually, whether it be the first use of exogenous hormones or the thousandth use, you will be hypogonadal permanently in the end. Um, and you will require TRT anyway. Um, and let's say it takes six weeks, eight weeks post-use for you to for you to recover your physiological function. Okay, great, but that's eight weeks that you've spent in a period that is associated with many negative health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And let's say you do that twice a year, that's 16 weeks of the year that you've spent in an unhealthy state that is deleterious to your long-term health. And so is the 12 weeks, 14 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever that you just spent on anabolics. So you're extending the time period that you are in the zone of negative health outcomes. Um, If your health is a concern, cruise at an actual TRT dose. In my opinion, of course. Yeah, that, that's literally put the nail in the coffin for me. Um, I, I think I think a lot of people are in it for the quick gains and, and want to do their you know their one to two cycles and then 
think they'll come off and hold this mass for the rest of their life. I mean, they can hold the mass or whatever, but the fact is they might may have hormonally compromised themselves for the rest of their life. And mm. they and, may and, never come and, back to where they were before ever taking steroids, you know? Hopefully nobody's listening to this saying, okay, Joe says I can just stay on it. And yeah, I don't give a fuck about my health. I'll just blast all year. You know, let's, I think the thing to do is take a step back, assess the goals. So somebody like you, Josh, with big men's physique goals, you don't need excessive amounts of hypertrophy and you've got excellent genetics. You very much don't need to blast year round on excessive dosages for your current goals. And that's what, now, if you wanted to be 300 pounds super heavyweight, maybe it would require some time of excessive dosages. But I, I truly think that nobody like me, I am never going to be a super heavyweight bodybuilder. I'm, I'm a small guy. You know, I've I've gone through my self experimentation of pushing uh, pushing dosages and not got anywhere. So for me to do that year round would be silly because it's not on the cards for me genetically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we need to take a long hard look at this and realise that when it's time to quit, it's it's time to quit and pull back. Yeah, um, that's the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is to be self aware of things like that. You know, when when it's not there, it's not there. Especially when sure. you're risking your health as well. And I've said this to clients. I'm like, look. You know, we've got this far, we're going to give it another year, and then I want you to stop all of this. Because if you don't land here by next year, yeah. you know, I've got, I'm not going to mention his name, I've got a 34 year old client now who, who is a super heavyweight in America, does really well. Um, but I was talking to him the other day, and, you know, he he's 34, so he's not extremely old, but I, I was just saying, look, you know, the dosing is an X amount for you to hold this weight. He's uh, 265 at the minute lean. He's in prep. Um, so he's a big guy. He's 5'10", 5'11"-ish. Um, but it's like, this is excessive. Health could be better. You're carrying a lot of weight. I mean, you have to remember, bodybuilders have a lot of vascular tissue, high BMI, and don't confuse the fact that muscle tissue is probably has a greater negative effect by virtue of being vascular. And carrying that around all the time is not good for you. Um and I just said, I don't want you to do this anymore because it's unlikely you're going to hit the next level because we've pushed pretty much as hard as I'd like to and we've pushed to the point where it's like the the toxic load is is outplaying the, the myotropic benefit like I spoke about and it's not worth going harder in terms of quality of life. Yeah. So you get to that point and say, this is enough now. And I consult... I mean, a lot of my work has moved away from coaching and moved into consultations. And I consult with a lot of competitive bodybuilders. Um, big guys, some of them, I consult with a few IFBB pros, if you want to choose to believe that or not. And um, the difference in their drug use is ridiculous. Really? So I, I consult with one guy who um, runs a gram of testosterone only for eight weeks, and then his blast will be five grams of total anabolics for um, something like 32 weeks, and then he'll come off for eight weeks. When I say come off, it's the gram of testosterone. Um, So that's a huge dose. But I also consult with one guy, uh, another IFBB pro, who cruises on 200 milligrams of testosterone per week for most of the year. But the thing to remember there, he's already where he needs to be. Um, he doesn't need to push. So again, very much personal goals, personal ethics, weigh up your own risk and reward, but unfortunately more is more yeah. over time. Yeah. But th- there's definitely an inverted U response with 
higher dosages of anabolics. You know, past the point of two to three milligram per kilogram plus insulin, plus dosages of 10 uh, units plus of growth hormone per day, the return on your investment is going to be very low. Yeah. I think that combination with most bodybuilders who tend to be either body dysmorphic, you know, just like just either OCD, you know, bodybuilding just attracts those kind of people who are just all in, you know. So mm -hmm. it, it, I think the the boundary of pushing drugs is just for some people they just don't see it. They just keep going, keep going, keep going. And it's hard to kind of stay grounded. So I can imagine how hard that conversation is for you to have with that dude, you know, because I imagine, you know, he's, he's probably spent his whole life building up to that, you know, trying to build muscle and trying to get to this goal that he's got. And then for someone to say, probably need to pack it in, mate. Like, that's a hard fucking conversation to have. Yeah, you get, and you get completely lost in it as well. Yeah. And it's it's people that I'll talk to and they'll say, my wife keeps getting to me, says I'm, I'm doing this and, and uh, you know, uh, my wife says I'm not the same anymore. And it, but you'll see a year later, those same people say, what was I doing? Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe it. Oh, you know, when I look back now, did I, did I really take that much? That's crazy. They're just like so lost in it. It's so easy to do because, you know, even with the people around me that I have, you know, Callum, you know, seeing the solid information that you put out with, with Luke and, and all that kind of stuff, in my head I'm still thinking, oh, I look a bit flat, I could I could stick an extra 50 milligrams in and fill out a little mm. bit. Do you know, like, that still plays in my head as, as grounded as I may be and as, as, as grounded as the people around me may be and as educated as they may be, I still have that little bug in my head that says, oh, I just want to get a bit bigger. And that's what, oh, yeah. that's what bodybuilders do, you know. So people yeah. have been doing it for years, yeah. you know, right back to the seventies. You know, don't think that these guys weren't using little doses. Yeah, for sure. I think <laughs> that's so, so much ignorance. Oh, they didn't use much back then. I was like, motherfucker, yes, they did. No, no, no. I'm, I've spoken to enough guys from the seventies and eighties competitors to to know that. Um, I mean, in the seventies, you'd be talking about three grams of total injectables per week. Uh, not a lot of testosterone. It wasn't readily available. Talking more Deca, some Primo. Um, and a lot of Dianabol. And when I say a lot of Dianabol, I'm talking 100, 200 a day. Um, and then in the 70s, we creep into similar dosages, but with more testosterone in there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the dosages actually haven't changed that much because most people are sitting around two to three gram per week, maybe with insulin growth and minus some orbitals on top in the, in the bigger ranks. We, we like threw out loads of different um, steroids, you know, insulin, growth hormone, trend, primo, all these different things. What, mm -hmm. what, I've always asked this question to people who know a lot about drugs, what makes you choose something over something else? I, I you know, why would I, why am I choosing Anavar over Dianavar? Why am I choosing testosterone over Sustanon? Why am I choosing, you know, what, what, what makes you design a stack and how, what thought process goes into designing a stack and what do you need to consider when you're designing a stack? I assume obviously your goals at the time are competing, not competing. Um, but yeah. beyond that, like where, where, where do you go from there? So this could be a massively long discussion on this. So I'll try and keep it short. Um, so when you look at various anabolics, we, we, we have the testosterone molecule, and then over time, um, things have been derived from testosterone or nandrolone, which is an endogenous um, molecule. You see derivatives of testosterone, derivatives of downstream. Um, so testosterone will run under the 5-alpha-reductase pathway into DHT. DHT derivatives have been synthesized. Various 19 norandrogens, the most obvious being nandrolone and trembolone, and then DHT derivatives like masteron, primobolin, anabar, etc. Um, I mean, scientifically, we've always been looking for the compound that 
minimizes androgenic effects and maximizes anabolic effects in in tissues in non-androgen specific tissues like the prostate etc because these things ultimately are, are muscle wasting drugs in, in a large sense but we don't want effects on on peripheral tissues we don't want virilization in, in females we don't want um, prostatic hypertrophy in men so we're looking for things that grow muscles but don't affect other androgen sensitive tissues um, like the brain and uh, in terms of bodybuilding it's going to ultimately come down to the goal and I think the bro science bodybuilding of test Decker for growth and Trend Primo for fat loss, actually they get it quite right because um, there are drugs that are going to have a greater hypertrophy potential um, so maybe they have a greater potentiation for estrogen like testosterone um, the aromatase pathway and estradiol itself is very anabolic um, nandrolone is the same, albeit less estrogenic and converts to estrogen via a different pathway it's very anabolic um, drugs like the harsher androgens like Trembolone um, they're going to have fat loss effect by binding to androgen receptors in adipose tissue. Of course, testosterone and androgen also have these effects, but milligram for milligram, they're less androgenic. And because they don't convert to estrogen, they have a greater cosmetic effect. Um, so you look harder. Or there's things like there's been some, albeit rodent research on trembolone reducing, or no, sorry, it was bovine research on um, heifers, which is a cow that hasn't had a calf, um, when they were looking to increase feed efficiency and the quality of the meat, they noticed that intramuscular marbling, when trembolone was used, uh, was reduced. So triglycerides intramuscularly were reduced with trembolone. So that's where you will see someone say, trembolone makes me look harder. I believe that to be the anecdote. So your drug choice is ultimately going to come down to the goal. Also, your risk-to-reward ratio, because things like primobolin carry a very much less toxic load than things like trembolone. But both can be used to leverage specific goals. Um, there, there will also be, again, your ethical considerations. Like, for example, I don't have much interest in exotic compounds or new compounds. So let's use, um, let's use dihydrobaldenone, DHB, for example. So have you, have you heard of DHB? Yep. So DHB is basically a, a metabolite of baldenone, but... Um, this is a very new drug in terms of literature. I think I found two papers on them, both animal papers. Um, that worries me. I don't want to use something that has such little actual human data on, whereas testosterone and androgen, we have a ridiculous amount of literature on their efficacy and their potential as an anabolic, and they do that very well. Why would I choose an exotic that I have no idea on the mechanisms of action in a human? Um, but... Is it potentially a lot more anabolic and a lot more androgenic than testosterone? Well, yeah, on paper it would appear so, although the androgen receptor binding research is rather messy, um, it would appear so. I'm not sure on the anecdote of people using it. I haven't seen a ton. Um, but, again, I feel like we have better choices, and it may be a risk to use something like that. Uh, so, again, risk to reward, what you want, and possibly some data that we have on the compound and also your biological into individual response to the drug so for example i was on a consult with somebody yesterday who was um they were basically struggling to find an off-season stack that worked for them uh, but they were always using multi-compounds and jumping into uh, like higher dosages so we sort of came up with this plan that we would we would leverage with testosterone first incrementally increase the dose over x amount of time collect data and monitor response and then we would cruise on TRT for a while, and then we would repeat the process with nandrolone, collect data, um, anchor the stack with nandrolone, and then we can look back and say which compound 
And could it have sat the best? Did you suffer estrogenic effects at anything at any point? How did you look? How did you feel? How was your strength? How was your um, just general performance? How was your sleep, etc.? Um, and then we can go back and say, okay, well, uh, let's say testosterone worked best for me at this dose. Maybe I require some androgens to control the estrogenic effect, but that's fine. I'm willing to accept using additional androgens. Or the other way around, hey, I look better using uh, an androgen anchor with just a TRT dose of test. You know, so very much down to self-experimentation over time. Uh, yeah, I think a good point that you, that you said there was the, the individual difference that people have. And I think a lot of people are looking for these, like, blanket cycles that they can just take you know <clears throat> what can i take to gain oh 200 milligrams of that 40 milligrams. well actually the individual difference that you're going to have from the person that's setting that for you it could be completely different and you need to track all these things that you mentioned you know sleep hrv you know blood work you can see and you can see the differences having visuals you know are you actually growing from it or is it making a difference absolutely and i think it's key in your in your novice years of using anabolics if you so choose to do so is to Introduce compounds one at a time at modest dosages and only change your stack design with one single change, whether that be an introduction of a new compound or an increase of dose every two at a minimum to eight weeks um, and assess the response. So let's say your first blast is going to be uh, 500 milligrams of testosterone with 30 milligrams of dianabol per day. Uh, fairly low risk, but... If you do get estrogenic effects, we're not quite going to be sure if it's the testosterone or the dianabol yeah. and what needs to be done about it. I, I just feel like adding one at a time and collecting the relevant data is going to pay dividends in your future reviews. It's the same with, it's the same with all of body weight. You know, does, does, does this training cycle work? Well, go try it for eight weeks. See what happens mm. in eight weeks. Does it work? Cool. Let's try something else, you know. And just, mm. just take, like you, if, if you change too many variables at once, how would you track the variables, you know? The, mm. the, the, the beauty of of us tracking every single variable is that when, when one variable changes, we see the stark difference because it's been clockwork. And I think getting yourself in that routine, if you're going to go down this route of tracking what you feel differently, even in things like sleep, you know, how do you feel when you, when you take trend? How do you feel when you take testosterone? Because I know people who can't sleep when they take testosterone, they have anxiety when they take testosterone, you know? So taking these, these self, like just notes about what's happening, because essentially, if you're going to go down this route, it's going to be a long route that you're going to take. So you must as well do the best that you can to learn about every single compound you're doing and what it does to your body. So when it comes to your your competition cycle, you say, oh, no, I did well with that drug last time, actually. I remember. I remember I felt pretty good. I still slept well. And, and just understanding that process, I think, would be key. So mm -hmm. cool. a lot of things to take from that. Um, a, a, a personal question that I, <laughs> I wanted to probe you on. Um, inevitably, like it's going to be the route that, a route that I'm going to take. Being a competitor, trying to be on the best physical condition that I can be in, um, visually, aesthetically, um, and the stigma around trend, and and it's very much made out to be this like demon molecule, like this demon drug that's less going to like you know make you break up with your girlfriend and and snap your head. Like this is what I get as a probably much of a of a of a newbie in in this industry in the steroid side of things and that's all I've ever had you know so it really brings like apprehensiveness to my decision to do that kind of thing but I'd love to to get your insight a little bit onto trend and and, and, and how strong is it is it really going to make me feel like this or is it a lot of it just stigma and I think coming to someone like who's you know probably used it has learned a lot a lot a lot about it and I can get much much better insight than reading some forums saying I've just broke up one this is because I took trend <laughs> yeah, well, I'm using 600 milligrams of trembolone in right now. So, um, 
That's I, I can speak from experience. I've I've tried using high dose training in the past and seen, but the but again to biological and to individuality, I I never suffered any emotional uh, side effects. But I'm very relaxed anyway. Um, I'm I'm married and I've been with my partner for a long time and I've still never raised my voice out. <laughs> um, so I'm just a very chilled guy anyway. But again, you do see people. I think a lot of it is psychosomatic though, and people say, "Yeah, you know, take train up, go fucking crazy." No, no, you still have control over yourself. Yes, it's very androgenic dose dependent. So milligram for milligram, it has a higher androgenic rating than something like testosterone, which does drive male characteristics. You know, if anybody has ever taken maybe um, halo testing, something with no ester around training, um, something very androgenic. Um, or even a, a higher dose of test base or, or trend base or, or even just a high androgen oral bolus dose around training, you know that it, it drives up your aggression and your focus. You know, so, so these are androgenic effects. And uh, on that, as a side note, I think this is going to be the most concerning thing that we find in the research in the next 50 or so years is, is just what these drugs do to the brain. And we already have data on, on androgen as a anti-norandrogen having great effects on the amygdala, uh, trembolone being of the same family, um, uh, being an anti-norandrogen, um, we see issues in the in the brain. And, you know, even just anecdotally thinking if something makes you super anxious and gives you insane dreams, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely brain activity there and there are androgen receptors in the brain. Uh, what are these things doing to our brain? Still very early days of research, but yeah. I think we are going to see something very worrying. Um, but I could briefly cover what trembolone is yes. what, it, what it does. Okay, so, so interestingly, trembolone is actually a SARM. It's not a steroid. Um, uh, most people don't know that, so that's quite cool. Um, I don't know what your opinion are on, on SARMs. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about it. People always ask me, what are your opinion on SARMs? I don't know enough about it. I, I, I'm not in a position to be able to give public, public opinions on stuff like that. Neither am I. But um, I'll give, a, I'll give a, a relative opinion because I think it, it's a bit juxtaposed to what you hear often, but I, I do truly think that sounds are the, the future mm-hmm. of, of steroid use, um, just not the ones we have now. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the ones that we have now, the research is very bleak to say the least. They're not as effective as anabolics and also tend to just cause the same deleterious health side effects. I think the biggest worry is that research companies sell sounds and people don't realise that this will cause HPG axis dysfunction. Yeah. Um, and, and many of them don't have any conversion to estrogen any, by, by any mechanism, let alone aromatization. Um, maybe they don't 5 alpha reduced DHT, so they are left in a state of chronically low estrogen, and then they come off and they have no testosterone either, and uh, it's not a good situation. However, I, think, I feel like sounds are what the biosynthesis of anabolics from testosterone derivatives to DHT derivatives to 19 or androgens, et cetera, et cetera. It's what we've been getting at for, for years, something that will bind that muscle tissue purely but have no action elsewhere. That would be the perfect drug, right? And it, it's coming. We're not there yet. And this is what the interesting trend was among scientists because it, it works like this. So, so although I will note now that, that basically all the data on trembolone is on animals, we are not animals. I know I've I've been attacked for this before, probably rightly so. Um, but I do the best with like what what I've got. Um, so an example of this in action would be like rats have rats skeletal muscle has a very low percentage of androgen receptor positive nuclei, um, whereas cattle 
they have really high concentrations of androgen receptors in skeletal muscle tissue. So when looking at the research, you've got to bear this in mind and how that might translate to humans, which hopefully I, I do. Um, so saying that anyway, so why is trenosam? Well, it doesn't 5-alpha reduce to DHT, so therefore it has less pronounced activity in androgen-sensitive tissues like the prostate, which is a plus, and why it was um, touted as a, as a possible TRT replacement. Because we have the issue with TRT that testosterone does bind at the prostate and cause prostatic hyperplasia, I'm sorry, hypertrophy, and stuff like that. Um, has no aromatase activity, just like other 19 androgens like nandrolone. However, unlike nandrolone, it does not convert to estrogen by any mechanism, whereas nandrolone does have a mechanism that occurs at the androgen receptor with a metabolite called estrone to convert to estrogen. Uh, so there's there's no DHT and no estrogen by tr from trembolone, so therefore don't run it on its own. Um, maybe unless you, you are after that cosmetic effect, which I personally have very much moved away from with clients. I don't tend to lower estrogen in um, contest preps anymore, ever. Um, but that's another topic. Yeah. Uh, but definitely don't run it alone. Um, and we'll go into why, actually, from a hypertrophy outcome in a bit. But the big topic I want to cover is the thyroid. Because I, I don't know why, but there seems to be this rhetoric online that when you use trembolone, you have to use exogenous thyroid hormones also, like T3 or T4. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, I've not seen that. You see it on a lot of bodybuilding forms, you know, trend shuts down the thyroid. Blah, blah, blah. Well, in terms of research, there, there is one trial that, that trend decreased T4 in heifers and trend plus estradiol decreased T4. Um, in another trial, trend plus estradiol increased T3 whereas trembolone itself reduced T3 and T4. So I think what I think this is just a, a misrepresentation or a misinterpretation of the research. Um, so co-treatment with etradiol basically results in higher T3 levels. Um, and we know, like I discussed on the podcast with the muscle mentors on growth hormone, that um, etradiol, E2, does stimulate the growth hormone IGF axis. So I think it's just an issue that maybe if you took train on its own and you had no estrogen, you'd have no stimulation of the growth hormone axes and therefore thyroid could possibly decrease. Um, have sufficient estrogen, you'll be fine. Um, in terms of lipids, like we were talking about earlier, in animal trials, of course, uh, train always improves lipid values, which is probably just by nature of improving their body composition. Yeah. Um, however, what we need to remember is that superphysiological dosages of, of anabolics will increase hormone-sensitive lipase activity and, and increase the breakdown of triglycerides and suppress HDL. Mm -hmm. um, an interesting one with TREN, uh, what it does to insulin, insulin sensitivity. So trial on rats, um, it shows, I'm, I'm impressing myself because I didn't know I, could, I had all this <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, uh, we see insulin and insulin resistance significantly lower in the rats that were, treating, that were treated with TREN. Um, even more interesting, they had a, a group of these rats that used testosterone, um, but Trend did it way better. So you see an anecdote of people even going hypo on Trend or, or being able to eat a lot more carbohydrates. So Trend does seem to, to anecdotally and in the research of these on animals have an effect on insulin sensitivity that, that is better than testosterone uh, by some mechanism that I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows. 
terms of binding to the androgen receptor, it binds with human androgen receptors about three times that of testosterone. However, like I said earlier, just remember that receptor binding studies don't really mean anything in the world when taking into account all the downstream mediations of androgens to hypertrophy outcomes. Like This doesn't mean that Trent will give you three times the hypertrophy of testosterone. So, talking about hypertrophy, trend obviously is shown in multiple trials to increase muscle mass when used alone and also in combination with testosterone, in combination with estrogen, in combination with both, and in combination with estrogen growth hormone. So, it always adds size. Um, however, pretty much all the research on this, and, and albeit in cattle, so remember they're very, they have high androgen receptors. Uh, when adding estradiol, the hypertrophy potential is much greater. So, as we spoke about, estradiol stimulates growth hormone IGF axis. So, using trembolone alone, trembolone alone, would um, would downregulate the HPG axis. So, you have zero estrogenic activity, um, which means less circulating growth hormone and IGF one. Whereas, combine it with estradiol, you get a higher IGF one, and therefore increased expression of mRNA levels of localized IGF-1 in muscle tissue, which again, on the growth hormone podcast with the muscle mentors, we went into why that is responsible for hypertrophy. So I would say as a practical takeaway from that, have sufficient estrogen or even aromatase activity, I would say, rather than just estrogen. Um, so when using Tremolone, if you want to maximize the effect. Um, now, the reason why I think Tremolone is so popular in contest preps, anecdotally, is in the research it shows how a huge potential to be anti-catabolic. So TREN acts as a glucocorticoid receptor agonist. So it, it will reduce glucocorticoid receptors in muscle tissue and about 50% more milligram per milligram than testosterone. So therefore, reduce muscle protein breakdown. Um, glucocorticoids also do other cool things like they will inhibit glucose uptake. So trembolone could again be acting to increase glucose utilization in skeletal muscle cells which I think we do see, like I mentioned earlier. Um, again, milligram per milligram trend does appear to be more potent for reducing body fat than testosterone. Simply, by nature, it being so androgenic, it binds to androgen receptors in adipose tissue and therefore inhibit lipid uptake and, interestingly, increase beta-2 androgenic receptor expression. So if you're using clamutrol kind of or thyroid hormones, you'll see a great synergy there. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's a kind of basic rundown of Tremblone. I think if I was going to give a practical takeaway is that this is a very strong compound that should be respected. Um, I very much balance around in my head whether it has a greater use in a gaining phase or a fat loss phase. Mm -hmm. There are pros and cons to both. In a gaining phase, running a low dose, especially if you're using growth hormone and insulin will have supreme synergy it's very anabolic it's very strong and you will be less systemically stressed in the gaining phase um you will have less net effect on sleep and whatnot just from your sympathetic tone being lower in the gaining phase um so a low dose of trembolone works excellently in the gaining phase however the con you would rather limit systemic stress maybe less in the gaining phase um in a in a fat loss phase i mean the greatest potential of it being an anti-catabolic however I don't think that we need a lot of exogenous hormone realistically to inhibit proteolysis from occurring or muscle loss. Yeah. So is it necessary as an anti-catabolic? No. Does it help lipolysis? Yes, to some degree. But again, it's going to affect your sleep. It's very androgenic. It's, and androgens drive sympathetic tone, uh, as a note that I didn't mention. So 
the higher total milligram of androgens in your stack, the greater sympathetic response you're likely to have. In a contest prep when that's already high, you can get some negative return on investment there. So there, there's some basic considerations I'll probably make on using it. And this is this is why using more trembolone is often not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. So manage your stress, people. Get parasympathetic when you can. You exactly. <laughs> awesome. Um, there was a few things that, I, that we, we're not going to talk about. Um, uh, Romantize inhibitors. Go see, go listen to um, Joe and the Muscle Mentors podcast with aromatized inhibitors. Um, it was awesome. I learned a lot. Um, a lot of take homes from that. Maybe maybe something you want to look to, towards getting away from. Um, and then the growth hormone podcast with the muscle mentors as well. So please go listen to those um, just so we can be a little bit more concise here. Um, and then we'll just run through a few questions if that's all right. And then we can we can wrap things up. Um, cool. So oral only cycles. We, we've said it before. Um, it's probably a question, most asked question by people. Can I do an anavar only cycle? Pros and cons. Should I? Shouldn't I? First cycle. You asking me? Anavar? Is that the question? Anavar only. The, que- the question is always: Can I take an anavar only cycle first? Yeah, this is a, a Mike Israelism <laughs> <laughs> from his his podcast not long ago. He said it's a it's a good idea. It's a good to dip your toes into um, anabolic shoes to use a little bit of a anavar. And I, I think his reason was that it wouldn't shut down the HPGX, which yes, true. If if you're exogenous intake does not overtake your endogenous secretion and you will not shut down the um, HPG axis, yes. Uh, but I would question the idea if this would give you, because he said it gives you an idea of what anabolics feel like, uh, but it doesn't, because no male only uses five milligrams of anabolic per day. Yeah. So it's not actually going to give you an idea of anything. Um, I wouldn't recommend an anabolic only cycle that does just sufficient to create a great enough myotropic benefit to notice anything. Um, maybe if you are only bolus dosing around the workout for an increased ergogenic drive or training, although again, hypertrophy isn't that acute. I don't tend to uh, leverage stacks or use growth anchors with orals. It's just uh, not a good idea in terms of health or, or even return investment because long and slow is how hypertrophy works. We all know this is a game of patience and consistency. Um, now, so anabar no because you will have no estrogen at sufficient dosages let's say you're taking enough anabar to get um, HPG axis shut down and you're spreading it throughout the day to have a relatively level blood serum you have no estrogen therefore less fat loss less hypertrophy mm-hmm. you have no libido because don't forget that libido is the primary uh, estrogen is the primary driver of human libido and you'll feel like shit so don't do that mm-hmm. Nice, I like it. Um, like you said, they're long and slow. The next question was going to be kickstarting cycles of orals. I've seen this written everywhere. Um, people have sent me people cycles. UK you run three hundred milligrams of test and anthate or whatever, but start off with dianabol so you feel it quicker and kickstart the cycle. Um, is that a myth? Yeah, this isn't really how the pharmacokinetics or dynamics of of esterified steroids work. Um, Although, yes, it may take, let's say, between four and six full half-lives to reach a stable blood serum in most people under a terminal half-life, uh, within 24 to 48 hours of, of injecting either a long ester um, compound, you, you will have pretty much all of that in your blood. Yeah. It's just the tail-off 
jumps up. I mean, the tail off is slower, and then at your next injection, you go a bit higher, your next injection a bit higher, a bit higher, until it remains stable. Um, that's not the use for orals, no. It's not to, to feel something. And again, hypertrophy isn't acute either. So even if that was true, it wouldn't have efficacy in gaining muscle. Um, so supplements to to help lipids. Um, I know we didn't want to go too far into this, um, but I know there, there, was, there was quite a few questions just about things that you can do. I know there's supplements that we can take for everything, but is it is there anything that you'd recommend directly for lipids? Um, what specific lipids? Um, it was HDL initially. Okay, so so like I said, I'm not sure HDL is, is such a big yeah, issue. Exactly. Yeah. Um, however, supplements that will push up HDL are um, Things like pantothene, citrus bergamot, mm -hmm. um, a good flush of niacin, cardarine. Yep. That's good. I mean, I'm not recommending anybody use a research chemical, but I've experimented with cardarine. I've just noticed on my blood work that my, my HDL creeped up. Um, just for general uh, lipid support, I like olive leaf. Um, grapeseed extract's good. Mm -hmm. Ubiquinol with a good PQQ. Um, a good quality garlic extract, allicin. Yeah, allicin. Nice. And a, a supplement that, that isn't necessarily linked to lipids but will improve cardiac function that I think every anabolic user should use is a good quality K2. I really like Super K from Life Extension. Their, their blend of K2 is, is excellent and it's, it's inexpensive. In terms of protecting against cardiac hypertrophy, etc., K2. Is a magical compound that comes that comes in a lot of uh, vitamin D mixes, right? Like that, I, I don't I don't actually take vitamin D. <laughs> I've never actually had a, an issue with my D three on my blood work. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I think that's a lot. Of, what a lot of people do that they'll just throw in supplements, even though their blood work might not reflect they need those supplements. Right, people forget about D three is that it is stored hepatically quite a long time as well. So you are likely sufficient. I mean, I'm outside about. Five hours a day anyway. Yeah, so you go. Nice. Um, fertility and the myths or not myths surrounding it. Am I am I going to lose my ability to have children if I start taking testosterone? Um, well, well, I would say that um, testosterone has been trialed as a birth control agent, um, really? but it failed. Uh, it was very, um, it was very, it, it, it only narrowly failed, and then you have very harsh androgens like uh, Trestolone, um, that were trialed across Asia as male birth control, and although it failed because it wasn't sort of like 99% effective, um, it was still very effective. Uh, yes, but again, biological inter-individuality, yes, all suppression, so we see reduction in GnRH when we inject these compounds, and therefore LH and FSH, which are the main drivers of spermatogenesis do reduce, but they reduce to varying degrees in each individual. So um, you can simply look at somebody like Ronnie Coleman, who has some like nine daughters or something ridiculous. He obviously wasn't affected. Um, but I mean, everyone will be to some degree, whether it's dropping your spermatogenesis or sperm motility down to the point that you are infertile, um, who knows you'd have to get a spermatogenesis test done. I did out of um, curiosity and I have zero percent chance fertility um which explains a lot of things considering i've been with my wife for nearly uh, four years and uh, we've never had an issue <laughs> so um 
yes, it will affect fertility. Uh, but but to me, it's a non-issue because we do have drugs now that artificially increase spermatogenesis. So unless you're going into anabolic use with prior fertility issues, you haven't got anything to worry about. That, that was that was my understanding of it as well. I, I think that's probably one of the biggest issues for people and making that leap. It's like, oh, I might have to have kids, I might have kids. Yeah. Um, so great, great. Um, cool. I don't want to bog down with too many more questions. So just a final question. Where's the best place to get this kind of information from? You know, because the one thing, like, I can sit here with my mouth open, just like, you know, as you reel these things off and off and off. But like, where are you going for this? Where are you getting this from? Um, I thought you were about to ask where's the best place to buy steroids. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> where's your link? Give me your number. <laughs> um, it's that's a hard question but I get asked it a lot like, hey what books did you read it's like um, to be honest um, it's literally a case of I've sat on PubMed and Google Scholar um, so this is the research so there's two sides um, so the anecdotal side I've been on forum boards and private groups and I've known bodybuilders and I've gathered a ton of this individual information over years and years and years because I've always been, you know, it's nearly 10 years I've been doing this every day now. Yeah. So I've gathered a lot of, of information over time and just anecdote, which is super important because like I said with the Tremolo, we haven't got a ton of human data, but it's when you start correlating and, and noting trends that things become clear. Um, and of course with my client work and whatnot, that stems in there as well. There's just collecting a ton of anecdote. On the other side, there's the evidence-based practice. So it will literally be a case of digging through as much data as I can on a specific compound. Like growth hormone became an absolute baby of mine for years, which will explain a lot of the stuff that I spoke about on growth hormone on the um, growth hormone podcast. And I will just find myself in these rabbit holes on PubMed reading as much growth hormone research as I can learning to interpret the data well and then somehow if possible placing it in the context of a physique athlete mm -hmm. um, that's probably the best explanation i can give and also i paid for consultation with people i consider experts in the field yeah. um so just like anything i think that you should invest in education mm -hmm. um, so definitely i mean I still do it now. I mean, it's why I work with Luke because biomechanics is my is my bottleneck. So I pay for Luke to teach me the ins and outs of biomechanics, and then I also work with those guys and help them with their with their biochemistry. Yeah. Um. So Amazing. definitely, um, it's it's a tough one to answer, but I would just get onto PubMed and just take your time, and literally you can go on PubMed, search Clembutron, yeah. read the data on it. I also, I also think, um, don't be afraid if you just don't actually want to know all the stuff. Like, don't be afraid to outsource that. <laughs> you know, yeah. for, for example, you can get consultations from Joe. I've sent people who, you know, who want to take steroids and want me to take them through it and all this. I've sent them to Joe. I've said, no, go speak to Joe. Go speak to these other guys because, you know, they are in a position to be able to advise. I'm not, you know, so don't be afraid to outsource that if that's there. Um, and Joe is someone who does that. So if you're interested, um, Joe, Joe, Joe can consult with you. I'm sure you can just fire a message, email, um, anything like that. Um, but thank you so much for coming on, dude. Um, I appreciate it. There's a lot of take homes here. A lot of myths busted. A lot of a lot of like you know silly questions that a lot of people would ask have been have been answered. So um, I appreciate you for coming on, dude. 
thank, thank you very much. I'm following the prep closely. Me and uh, Jazz are watching your YouTube videos over dinner when they come out. So, um, yeah, great work so far. You look fucking epic, man. You're coming in really fast. Yeah, just just working. Just work. Just head down. Just keep working. Keep working. I see what you did to your leg. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm absolutely livid. You know what I did? I, I took a jab spot from Luke. And he was like, yeah, go here. And I did it. And it absolutely wrote me off. What? You, you, the top of your VL? Yeah. That was I've been there all the time. I mean, I've been... I've been every day of my life for the last five years and um, never had an issue with the VL. But, you know, this is a thing where people, this is another note that like people freak out when they get a little bit of a swelling after injection or something like that. You have to just put a metal rod in your muscle between half an inch to an inch deep and injected this this oily depot. Like, things are, things are definitely going to happen. I mean, I've had cellulitis in the past, which was bad. Yeah, same. I had, that, I had that two weeks ago. I had that two weeks ago on my shoulder. Oh, you're unlucky. See, I only had that once, and I think that's actually the only infection I've ever had. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm not going to lie, I've never used an alcohol swap. <laughs> but I believe I actually don't believe this is a recommended uh, thing anymore in terms of research. That, uh, at least I know that it's not for um, subcutaneous injection. Um, so I'm not sure the effort. But nobody take that away and start doing that, of course, because I'd have to look back on the, the research there. But, um, yeah, I just... So <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. Um, what way to close it off? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you, Josh. Pleasure. Cheers, dude. Thank you guys for tuning in. We will see you very, very soon. Goodbye.